You might read or hear that Japan's politicians and media are saying that Fukushima has been decontaminated. Everything is safe. And y'all should come on down to the Olympics in 2020. But then you decide to check things out for yourself. And that's when you hear a genuine on-the-ground-in-Japan expert tell you. Still, there are very large areas which show much higher radiation than the rest of Japan. You can't just eliminate radiation. It doesn't just disappear into thin air. All you can do once it's been let out of the nuclear power plant is move it from one place to another. And the people who've had to evacuate, even the people who've moved back, there's a lot of anger at this government campaign to use the Olympics as a propaganda tool to convince Japan and the world that everything's fine. Of course, everything is not fine. And there's a whole lot more to back that up. Well, when you hear about the ongoing radiation problems in Fukushima and government cover-ups and even the P-word propaganda, you can pretty well bet that you and I and the people of Japan and anyone who's actually thinking of attending that radioactive Olympics in Tokyo in 2020 are all sitting smack in the middle of the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, our second Fukushima 8th anniversary special, this time featuring reports, including those from on-the-ground activists in Japan, as well as those who assist them here in the U.S. We will hear from Misao Redwolf, one of the primary organizers of the Friday Night Tokyo anti-nuclear demonstrations outside the Diet, the Japanese Parliament Building. Former Tokyo media personality Carol Hisasue, with first-hand observations about those ongoing protests. Dr. Caitlin Strinell an internationally trained nuclear lecturer who is presently working as a researcher with the Japan-based Citizens Nuclear Information Center and reports on that NGO's findings. We'll hear more from Simply Info's Nancy Faust and Los Angeles-based activist Tsukuru Fors Lordson will tell us about the movie Fukushima Speaks and not only where to see it in Los Angeles to commemorate Fukushima, but how to book it for a screening in your area. Today is Tuesday, March 5th, 2019, and here is Nuclear Hot Seat's second of two special reports on the Fukushima nuclear disaster's eighth anniversary, from March 11, 2011, to now. We'll start with an interview with Masao Redwolf. She is an activist member and one of the founders of the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes, which coordinated response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. 
In March of 2012, on the first anniversary of the start of that disaster, the coalition began protesting the restart of Japanese nuclear power plants. They did so in front of the prime minister's residence on Friday nights. By that summer, the demonstrations grew to giant actions with 200,000 protesters. As a result, members of the coalition were invited to speak with then-Prime Minister Noda of the Democratic Party of Japan at the residence. His administration decided on a nuclear phase-out policy of no nukes by 2030. But since then, the administration has changed to Prime Minister Abe, and his party, the Liberal Democratic Party, actively supports nuclear power. And still, the Friday protests continue every week to this day. This report was produced by Carol Hisasawe, who also provided translation and voiceover. Misao, where were you when 311 happened and the Fukushima nuclear disaster began? I was speaking with a good friend who lives in Iwaki City, Fukushima Prefecture, when the earthquake happened, and I heard dishes rattling in the back through the phone, and then Tokyo started shaking. I was surprised at how connected we were, how close Tokyo was from Fukushima. After speaking for a bit, we hung up. I'd been involved in the anti-nuke movement since 2006, so I wondered if Fukushima Daiichi and Fukushima Daini were okay. So I kept watching for news on television, but it was totally inadequate. I spent a lot of time on the internet and Twitter trying to find out what was really going on. I also spoke with my friend in Fukushima several times. For two or three days, I was glued to the television, internet, and phone, catching a few moments of sleep in between. I remember thinking how not normal life was. How did you become involved with the Friday protests in Japan? I guess I was responsible for setting up the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes. I called everybody together. After March 11th, a lot of people started demonstrating on weekends in Tokyo. People who had never done anything like this before. Different groups appeared, and I wondered if we couldn't all get together for one big action. So I called out to about 10 different organizations, and that's how the coalition began. I suppose you could say I'm the instigator. What has been the goal of these protests? Near the end of 2011, OE nuclear power plant was set to go back online. Stress test hearings were held by the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry with a panel of nuclear experts. Can OE be restarted? And they decided that it passed the stress test. So now the question was, will they restart the nuclear plant? Now that's a political decision. At the time, the ruling party was still the Democratic Party of Japan. So Prime Minister Noda and his cabinet were going to have a conference at the Prime Minister's residence. Well, during the stress test hearings, we were protesting in front of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, so I suggested that we move to the Prime Minister's residence during a Metropolitan Coalition meeting. And that's how we began protesting in front of the Prime Minister's residence on Friday nights. We began by protesting the restart of the OI nuclear power plant, but then it grew to zero nukes, shifting energy policies, and stopping the restart of all other nukes. Our main goal is for Japan to eliminate all nukes, 
zero nuclear power plants, nuclear-free. How have these protests been received by Japanese society? We held the first demonstration in front of the Prime Minister's residence in 2012, and that drew two to three hundred protesters. But the cabinet meetings went on week after week. So we did too. When they decided to restart the power plant, the number of protesters grew. Television picked it up in the evening news, more people found out, more people came. It kept growing. But as time went on and there was less news about us, the number of protesters began to decline, and now lots of people have forgotten about us. On the internet, social media, you can see comments like, I can't accept these protests, or what's the point of demonstrating? So while more people are receptive to these actions, I think there are those who oppose them or are just plain uninterested. How is the government responding to these protests? During the Democratic Party of Japan administration, we had roughly 200,000 demonstrators. I and the other members of the Metropolitan Coalition were invited to the Prime Minister's residence for a meeting. So I feel they were pretty receptive to us. But the Abe administration, they just ignore us. The size of our protests is nowhere near what we had before, too, so it feels like while they're concerned, they're letting it slide for now. It's now almost eight years since the nuclear accident began. In that time, what has changed about the demonstrations? In the beginning, 2012, the accident was barely a year old. We were all still in shock about the accident. So the motivating factors for participating were mainly emotional, anger, and sadness. But now, eight years after the start of the accident, you feel there's less emotion but maybe more of a serious commitment among participants to somehow, anyhow, stop Japan from going back to nuclear energy. So even though the number of protesters is small, the intention is very strong. There's a calmer but stronger feeling generally. Another change is that we have fewer younger protesters, with the majority being older people. It's a bit unfortunate that more young people aren't involved. After all, it is their future at stake. Yes, it is unfortunate, but the older people feel responsible for not protesting earlier and stopping Japan from becoming so dependent on nuclear energy. Also, they're doing this for their grandchildren. They feel strongly that they can't leave such a world for their grandchildren. That's a feeling I got from speaking to them. Also, it's difficult for young people to stay actively involved for too long. They're all working hard for their own future, their own career. So you can't really criticize them. What about media coverage? Two or three years ago, if there was some nuclear-related news, the media would call an activist, like me, for comments. But today, the Abe administration has so many problems beyond just nuclear issues, so the main issues in the news have been changing, and we have fewer media requests. What is planned for this year, as well as next year, with the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, if the Games will actually be held? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Are they really going to be able to host the Olympics? We hear of so many problems. But regardless, we'll continue these Friday night protests. 
due to our finances, we know we can continue for two more years. Other than that, we hold three large demonstrations each year. We create leaflets, things like that. Many want to continue these actions during the Olympics, so I know we will. I think we'll be okay with police-related matters during 2020. The police force, riot police, they'll be sucked up by security needs elsewhere during the Olympics, so it may be even easier to act then. I really don't think there'll be any kind of suppression. What, if anything, would you like to add? The Abe administration is a promoter of nuclear energy, but after the Fukushima Daiichi accident, 70 to 80 percent of the Japanese population wants a country to go nuke-free. Right now, export of nuclear energy is at a standstill, and it's difficult to restart the nukes even if the administration wants that. Even the manufacturers of nuclear power plants are getting hesitant about building more. Many major corporations are talking about RE100, supporting 100% renewable energy, and local governments are also shifting to renewables. So society is moving towards a nuke-free Japan, while the Abe administration is stuck in the nuclear fuel cycle, holding on to an illusion and adamantly refusing to change energy policies. We want to correct Japan's direction. What I'd like to tell the American listeners is the U.S.-Japan nuclear agreement was automatically extended last year. This agreement is very influential to Japan's nuclear policy. So my hope is that there be a continuous debate about this agreement on a public and citizen level on both sides of the ocean. It'll surely influence Japan's energy future. That was Masao Redwolf, an activist member and one of the founders of the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes in Japan. We'll have a link up to the coalition and also to a Japan Times article about Misao on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 402. We'll also have a link up to a Japanese version of this interview, which is posted on YouTube. So if you have connections in Japan, please pass them along. The production, translation, and voiceover for that interview were provided by Carol Hisasue, a former journalist and media personality from Tokyo. Carol is now an anti-nuclear activist living in California, where she continues to write and work on media projects. She has attended the Friday night demonstrations in Tokyo many times and filed this observational report exclusively to Nuclear Hot Seat. So I've been going to the Friday demonstrations as well as some of the uh, demonstrations at the Diet whenever I'm in Japan. The earlier demonstrations were very big. I was at one a couple of months after uh, March 11th, and there were tons of people. Since then, of course, numbers have been fluctuating, but most Fridays it looked like a couple of hundred people, especially recent demonstrations. Like many political actions, this one is also made up of many smaller groups as well as individuals. Recently, I met up with a group that has been making an appearance every week since the demonstrations began, and it's a loose group of people from the design, film, and art world. They are responsible for the no nukes and the number nine no war luggage tags. I'm sure you've seen some of them. I met them through another Japanese expat activist, Miki Bay, who lives in Southern California. Now, these friends of mine bemoan the small numbers of participants at the recent Friday rallies, but I had to tell them that in California, anti-nuke demonstrations today are very small indeed. 
Plus, you know that when the numbers are small, their convictions and dedication are much fiercer. So I feel that in Tokyo, too, the hardcore activists are the ones who show up week after week. And it's kind of nice to know that, you know, now it's not just a bunch of looky-loos, but people who are really dedicated to fighting for a nuclear-free Japan. Right now, the anti-Abe demonstrations seem to draw a lot more people than the no-nuke actions. The funny thing is that our Prime Minister Abe is not thin-skinned like Trump and does not seem at all disturbed by these demonstrations. I guess to him, we're just a bunch of common people beneath him, cockroaches not worth listening to or even paying attention to. His constituents are the big businesses, the industries, the corporations of Japan, and the people who believe that as long as Japan is doing well economically, all will be fine. Of course, another nuclear accident and the economy would just be shoved down the drain along with everything else. Let me also say that while they let these demonstrations go on, because to Abe, they mean absolutely nothing. I'm sure there's a lot of surveillance going on at the same time. Anyone expressing anti-government sentiment is considered an enemy of the country now. And while the administration is letting the demonstrations go on, they probably have a dossier on all the main activists. As for the Olympics, I think Japan is kind of split between people that feel this is a great thing. It's a great opportunity to appeal to the international audience let them see, you know, what a high-tech, wonderful country Japan is, never ever mentioning radiation because, as Abe said, it's all under control. And then there's a whole other group of Japanese who are very opposed to the Olympics, not so much because of the Fukushima effect, but more because, you know, economically, they just don't think this is a good idea for Japan. There are others who think that the money could be better spent on really dealing with Fukushima instead of, you know, doing something that's basically window dressing. But if they do happen, and I think they probably will, unfortunately, it'll be a good opportunity for the activists to stage larger actions for all the international visitors to see. That was journalist and former Tokyo media personality Carol Hisasaway. Last week, for the anniversary of Fukushima, we featured a full program interview with Nancy Faust, who is communications manager and research team member at simplyinfo.org. Simply Info is a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archive of data on the Fukushima disaster. Every year, they publish an extensively researched and vetted update on what's happening at the disaster site and to the people still living with the aftermath. Last week's interview did fill up the entire show, and there was still information we could not fit in. Now seems to be the perfect time to include these points, as this week's on-the-ground look at what's happening to the people of Japan takes a look at how the world is being manipulated into thinking that everything is A-OK at Fukushima when it is not. Here, once again, is Nancy Faust of Simply Info. There has been a medical case of a girl found to have been exposed to 100 millisieverts to her thyroid. Talk to us about this case and how it contradicts the official Japanese line about levels of exposure. There were a number of things that had gone on as people were evacuating. There were various evacuation centers set up, and some of the larger ones had response teams that came from various hospitals and universities, and they would test people for radiation. They'd scan them with a scanner in their hand and make sure they weren't covered with radiation. 
If they were, they'd have them get clean clothes and they had a shower system set up and they'd try to clean people off and, you know, get their radiation level low enough that they could then go on to the evacuation center and leave. As they were doing this, they found a young girl who had this high radiation level in her thyroid. When they were scanning her, they scanned over her thyroid and it set off the meter. So they actually took, with this hand meter, they took a a reading and, and recorded the reading into their paperwork. This paperwork was handed in to the central government later on, but nothing was ever done about it and it was included in none of the official reports. So anybody else that was like this girl probably didn't make it into these reports either. But one of the response workers remembered this case, told the press, the press got a hold of the records from this evacuation center and was able to prove that this individual had had such a high thyroid exposure. This shows us a couple of things. One, this girl came from Futaba City, which is the area just outside of Fukushima Daiichi. She had been outside on the day that Unit 1 had exploded. So we know she had an unusual exposure, but there may be other people that had unusual exposures. There were lots of people that were still in the area and they were doing different things because people had different understanding of what was going on. Some were alerted to the emergency, some were not alerted to later, and so they were outside when things happened. But we know this individual girl got a really high exposure, and it shows that exposures are very personal. You can scan five people that you found over here and they'll show that they had you know, a minimal exposure, but this other person, because of their unique circumstances, had a completely different exposure. So you can't always just take a couple of people and use them to apply to everyone else. And this girl's situation is one such case that really shows that taking a couple of people and applying it to everyone isn't an accurate way of definitively saying what happened to people. Do we have any follow-up on her? Do we know who she is, or has there been any reporting of whether she has developed cancer or not? There is no tracking of this individual. Japan has a very strict medical privacy law, so who she is will probably never be known. As far as anything that the government mentioned to the press about this, they didn't connect her with participating in any of the other programs. So we don't know what has happened to her, if she's gotten private care, if she's gotten any care, you know, if she's become sick. So we really don't know. And the family's probably not going to come forward because they probably just wouldn't want to put their kid into that kind of attention, which is understandable. So we don't know what happened to her. I mean, we do know what's happened to some of the kids that have participated in the health survey. And those participants show a rate of thyroid cancer that's way outside any norm. So we know that at least the people that are in that are showing higher than normal levels. And that's in a controlled situation. Citizen groups remain crucial to the gathering of reliable information on radiation readings. Who are these people? What are they doing? And what does their work show about the official monitoring systems? There's a number of citizens groups in Japan that are taking radiation readings of different kinds. One of those is a group called Mother's Radiation Lab. It's in a town called Awaki that's south of where Fukushima Daiichi is. It's outside of the evacuation zone. And this group has set up a very comprehensive laboratory. They're able to do quite a bit of testing, more than most citizen labs can do. They do a number of different types of tests. Citizens will bring in samples from their property. They'll test soil. They'll test plant samples. They'll test 
food they've bought, food that they've brought out of a garden or that they've foraged in the environment, you know, can you get blueberries or mushrooms, you know, out of the forest? And people will bring these things in. Another thing that many people have brought in is vacuum cleaner bags, which has been a very interesting thing that this lab has tested and found that many times these vacuum cleaner bags, what people are cleaning up out of their houses, will be extremely radioactive. So this is showing that you can think your environment's fine, but what you're cleaning up in total off of your floor is some pretty nasty stuff. That was Nancy Faust of Simply Info. You can hear the full-length interview on last week's show, Nuclear Hot Seat 401, on our website. And Simply Info's full report on Fukushima's 8th anniversary and what's going on on site and also to the people of Japan will be published on their website, simplyinfo.org, no later than March 10, which is this Sunday, and will be available on Amazon as of approximately March 12. We'll continue with this week's second Fukushima anniversary program in just a moment. But first, progress on my planned trip to Three Mile Island for the 40th anniversary of that nuclear meltdown continues. As I reported last week, thanks to the help of many, many listeners, I've been able to book my flights for the end of March, so yes, I am going. As activists and the international media converge on the site of the world's first commercial nuclear reactor meltdown, I will be there to bear witness, interview survivors and activists, and bring you the full story from those who lived through that horrifying experience and many of whom still live with its aftermath. There are so many stories from Three Mile Island that haven't been told, need to be told, and that's what I will be there to do. So yes, I'm going. But there are still a whole host of expenses I need to cover for this trip. Meals, you know, it's good to eat. Ground transportation, housing-related expenses, nothing elaborate. I'm an easy keeper. But I still need your help. So if you can, please, do it now. We make it very easy for you to donate. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can make a one-time donation or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who wish to support the show in a way that's easy on the budget, on the website there's a big green donate button that with just a few simple clicks allows you to set up a recurring donation of $5 a month. So whatever you can do to help, please do it now and know that you have my deepest gratitude. And now... Back to Nuclear Hot Seat's second Fukushima 8th Anniversary Update. We next spoke with Dr. Caitlin Strinell. She is an internationally trained nuclear lecturer who is presently working as a researcher with the Japan-based Citizens Nuclear Information Center. Dr. Strinell gives us a broader picture of the manipulation of Fukushima survivors and the difficulties they continue to face eight years after having to evacuate their homes and lives in the wake of the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear triple meltdown. Dr. Caitlin Strunell, it's so great to have you here with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be with you. And you're joining us from your home in Tokyo, where you've lived for the last 20 years. You are involved with a group called the Citizens Nuclear Information Center. What is that group? How did you become involved and what is your part in it? 
It's a non-profit organization, which is supported completely through individual donations and a membership. We don't take any funding from governments or, or companies. It's an organization that's been around for 40 years, in fact, well before the Fukushima disaster, although that was a big point in our history because at that point, everyone decided that government information was completely untrustworthy. And CNIC has always been about citizen science. So we try to empower people by allowing them to understand even difficult things like nuclear science. And our information suddenly became much more trustworthy. So after Fukushima, we've certainly played a very big role in uh, trying to inform the public in Japan. And the government can no longer ignore us. So now, you know, they kind of ask us to be on government committees or we're, have much more bigger media presence since that incident. But the point of our operation is to inform people, to empower them through information. My particular role at CNIC is I'm involved in the anti-plutonium campaign. We're campaigning against Japan's reprocessing program, whereby they process spent nuclear fuel and create plutonium, which of course can be used in nuclear bombs. So that's my main role, although in the NGOs you have to kind of do a bit of everything. So basically I'm, I'm a campaigner and researcher. The whole issue of Japan having plutonium is a fascinating issue, and we will cover that in a separate interview. But for now, focusing on Fukushima, do you work directly with Fukushima residents who were evacuated? And in what way and when did you start? Our organization has been working with residents who live near all of the nuclear power plants in Japan. There's been campaigns against all of them. And so, of course, Fukushima was also very much a part of our organization's approach from long ago. But of course, after the Fukushima Daiichi accident, uh, we've worked very closely with lots of different citizen groups in, in different capacities. The direct support for people in Fukushima also involves them having access to information, for example, radiation levels, so that they can prove that there are radiation problems. Often, for example, with monitoring, the government has installed various monitoring stations around Fukushima, but the readings that they give are sometimes completely much lower than what the actual situation is. So it's important for uh, citizen groups to be able to have information about radiation levels. Even basic things like that are often manipulated. So empowering people to have access to that sort of information is one of the things we do. There's a lot of citizen groups that have sprung up since the accident, which concentrate on making radiation maps. We've been part of that process. Uh, there's also court cases that Fukushima residents have launched against the government, against TEPCO. And it's important in court cases, obviously, that you have solid evidence. So we support some of those court cases in providing information. Various lobbying activities we hold negotiations with relevant government departments to try and convince them that they need to not take away compensation from Fukushima evacuees. Various issues along those lines that we've been part of. The official evacuation orders were lifted for most areas of Fukushima nearly two years ago. 
what is the present situation there? Are people returning? Do they trust the readings that they're getting that it's fine for them to go back? Is there mistrust? What's going on? There's a lot of mistrust. As I mentioned before, the monitoring posts that have been set up are not trustworthy. So people are making their own radiation maps. They're trying to get accurate readings. The government has spent huge sums of money on decontamination. So there's been lots and lots of decontamination teams that have moved into these areas. And what that basically means is you, you can't just eliminate radiation. It doesn't just disappear into thin air. All you can do once it's been let out of the nuclear power plant is move it from one place to another. So all of the houses, roads, schools that were covered in this radiation material after Fukushima exploded, all they can do is basically hose them down with high pressure water. They've taken the top soil and put it in those black bags, which are now in huge mountainous proportions right across the prefecture. So they've tried to have this decontamination campaign and convince people that it's all under control. But still, there are very large areas which show much higher radiation than the rest of Japan. And it's important that people know where those areas are. And of course, even though the government is trying to convince people that it's all okay and they can move back. And by lifting the evacuation orders, basically what they did was take away the compensation that people had, which meant that, you know, if you don't have a house and you have a house that has been abandoned for the last eight years, you still want to move back because there's no financial support. So removing that financial support was one of the reasons why some people have had to move back. And has been very minimal numbers. Uh, just to give you some figures, Tomioka, which is one of the areas that was evacuated up until two years ago, uh, had a population of 13,228 before the accident. And as of August last year, only 3.2% of the population had moved back. That's including new migrants. So it's not just people who lived there before, but it's people who've, who've decided to move there for various reasons. But 3.2% of, of 13,000 is not very many people. They say that it's 298 households. So basically, even these towns, once they've moved back, they're still like ghost towns. I was actually there last weekend in Tomioka, and you'll be driving along this sort of semi-deserted road, and there'll be big gaps, you know, where the tsunami carried away the houses. And even though there's no debris left anymore, there's just big gaps where there was once a house or a shop. And so you drive along the road and then there will be one house with a car and maybe people, signs of habitation. There's not really enough supermarkets or hospitals. They've built a huge big school, which it's supposed to be like a, a primary school and a junior high school. And at the moment, there's a total of 13 children. So really, it's still like a ghost town. And people, of course, with families, are very reluctant to move their children back because of the remaining radiation. Also, a lot of people have built new houses in different areas. After seven years, it's really difficult to suddenly uproot yourself from a life that you've built and move back to your other 
life. So there's been so much disruption and there really has been, yeah, a very high level of distrust, which makes it very difficult for people to believe these government insurances that everything is under control. That's what I want to get to next, because from the outside, it seems that there is tremendous pressure within Japan to make everything at Fukushima appear normal. It's all normalized. And of course, we can start the Olympic torch in Fukushima. We can mm-hmm. stage softball and baseball games in the stadium in Fukushima City. We can even house athletes in the location where mm-hmm workers for Fukushima were housed for many years. How do those people specifically living in the Fukushima area or who did live there feel about the government's push to normalize perception of the accident's aftermath? They're quite angry. Basically, uh, the people who've had to evacuate, even the people who've moved back, there's a lot of anger at this government campaign to use the Olympics as a propaganda tool to convince Japan and the world that everything's fine. And even the people who've moved back, of course, everything is not fine. So it really is a propaganda campaign and the government is trying to use the Olympics as as a a tool to convince everyone that, that it's all okay. As far as the athletes go, really they should be getting proper information too about the levels of radiation and the levels of risk I think that an argument could be made that there won't be health risks for them. But I think the real problem is that even if there aren't health risks for athletes who come and stay there for two weeks, the fact that this is really being used as a propaganda tool to convince everyone that it's okay, that is really the problem. And that's what the people who have to live there permanently are angry about. Right, because they are being put at risk by the illusion that it's okay for the world's premier athletes to come and do their thing for whatever period of time they're there, which is minimal. But Mm -hmm. the people who live there are going Mm -hmm. to have to be there in the aftermath. They are going to be forced to live there and the Mm -hmm. world will perceive it as normal when it is anything but. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And also the people who haven't been able to move back, which is the vast majority, are being tidied away. It's like their fault for deciding not to move back to an area that's perfectly normal. So it's like blaming them, even though their lives have been totally disrupted. They've had to move to a different location, start a whole new life completely. And it's like belittling their whole experience. It's like sweeping it under the the mat. So those people are also very angry, as you can imagine. That's the equivalent of blaming the victim, which is what perpetrators Exactly, and there's a lot of that. There really is. What about public opinion of nuclear power in Japan? Where does that stand now? Right, well, before Fukushima Daiichi accident, most Japanese, around 70 to 80%, approved of nuclear power. They thought it was a great way to... They swallowed all the propaganda about it being clean and green. But of course, after the accident, that went to a completely opposite side where uh, 70% of people in any survey were against nuclear power. And that has remained in any opinion poll that's been done recently. And there'll be lots more coming out, I think, with the 311 anniversary coming up. It shows that most Japanese, around 70 to 80%, still disapprove, largely disapprove of nuclear energy. 
a larger percentage, in fact, now want it to end immediately. And most people want it to be phased out. There's various different questions and ways of asking, but still a very high percentage of the Japanese population want nuclear power to be phased out. Unfortunately, that hasn't been reflected in election results. So it means that the Liberal Democratic Party has consistently won elections since 2011, since the disaster. And their policy is basically to restart, to try to restart nuclear power plants. This is because the people, the companies, the corporations that own the nuclear power plants see them, obviously, their assets. And if they're not being used, then it's really not good for their economy. So for economic reasons, the government is trying to restart. The policy is to restart uh, nuclear power plants. This actually hasn't proceeded as smoothly as the government and the corporations wanted it to. Before the disaster, there were 54 operating nuclear power reactors in Japan. Right now, as we speak, there are nine which are operating. So that's obviously a big reduction. And in fact, it seems quite unlikely that a whole lot more will be able to actually restart because of the strictest safety regulations. The companies have agreed to decommission 20 reactors of the 54 that were existing. And there are also many reactors which are in an idling situation and the, the companies which own them haven't even applied for approval for the safety tests. So it seems unlikely that a whole lot more reactors will ever be able to restart. And even though there are nine which are operating now, they're all in the western part of Japan, they haven't been able to restart any in the east where, where the disaster was. So really, even though there's this policy that exists on paper, it doesn't really reflect the reality of the situation on the ground. The anti-nuclear movement, the protests and demonstrations were massive in the period immediately after the Fukushima Daiichi accident. It's now eight years later. How active is the anti-nuclear movement in Japan? Every Friday, there's protests outside the parliament, outside the diet in Japan. They're still existing. I went to the one last Friday, a couple of days ago, and I have to say that the numbers have become much less, but I think it's amazing that it's even still continuing. Even after eight years, every single Friday, there's still people there. And it's a place where people gather to exchange information and to support each other. I personally think it's a very important space. It's holding space for other protests as well. So it really changed the culture, I think, the protest culture in Japan. And I think that shouldn't be underestimated. I think, though, that it is very difficult to maintain massive numbers. After the accident, there was huge anger, there was uh, frustration, and that's why there was such an outpouring of people on the streets. These days, that anger is still there, but, you know, it's really hard to maintain for eight years. So I think the movement needs to find other ways to express the public opinion, which is still there. It's just that 
you know, people, there's obviously fatigue sets in and uh, even though there aren't as many people on the street, certainly the anti-nuclear feeling is still there. Also, the media needs to be employed. There's this whole government movement that we were speaking about to try and cover up and say everything's fine needs to be challenged. So the evacuees, the people of Fukushima need to be given a voice and people really need to just not forget what happened. And I think it's only human nature that we try to kind of push away things that are unpleasant and tragic and horrific. But the movement uh, needs to really remind people that it's not okay and that we need to really address some core issues. That was Dr. Caitlin Strunell, a Tokyo-based, internationally trained nuclear lecturer who is currently working as a researcher with the Japan-based Citizens Nuclear Information Center. Our final interview is with Tsukuru Fors Lauritsen, a Los Angeles-based member of the Fukushima Support Committee. Born and raised in Japan, as a graduate of high school in Hiroshima, where 350 students lost their young lives on August 6, 1945, after the atomic bomb explosion, Tsukuru considers it their life's mission to be an active force to bring forth a nuclear-free future, most recently presenting documentaries about Fukushima and its impact so audiences can see and hear for themselves what people in Japan are going through since the nuclear disaster began. We spoke about the upcoming screening of Fukushima Voices in Los Angeles, and I'll have information on that event as well as a way to book the movie for showing in your area after our interview. Takuro Fors Lauritsen, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. First of all, what has been your involvement with nuclear issues and specifically Fukushima? On March 11th, 2011, I happened to be in Tokyo you know, my base is in LA, United States. I've been here for 28 years, but I occasionally travel to Japan on business. So I was there on business when the shaking started. I was on the 11th floor in Shinbashi, Tokyo, in the hotel. And I happened to be with my colleague who is from Fukushima. So you can imagine like the following day, we were watching TV and the following day, so the explosion at the nuclear power plant and observing her and being concerned about her family, that was like my personal connection to that particular incident in Fukushima. And previously, you know, I have a history of going to high school in Hiroshima, graduating from there, where 350 students died on August 6, 1945. So it's my personal legacy to create the world, you know, where there's like no, you know, nuclear, including nuclear weapons and nuclear power plants. So because of that personal connection that I had to that incident, to the, to the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi, I felt strongly about protecting uh, people's rights. But I actually, you know, to be honest with you, maybe I didn't do anything for years because I was one of these people who believed that the government would do something. It was not in my reality to think that the government will not do anything, first of all, to protect these people and to compensate them for the things that they lost. But when I saw like government inaction, I felt extremely frustrated and disturbed 
And I felt like personally responsible because I was one of these people who were just looking on and standing by doing nothing. My experience of you is as someone who has been very active. That's been my awareness of you. So at what point did this change for you and did you start to take action? I think that was my encounter with documentary film A to BC by Ian Thomas Ash, who is an American filmmaker who lives in Japan and following Fushima from the point that the accident. And I saw the film and I personally got connected with the filmmaker. And I finally realized the gravity of the situation because I was connected to the personal stories in that film. And we have interviewed Ian Thomas Ash and previewed portions of his film here on Nuclear Hot Seat. And I know mm -hmm. it's very powerful, especially as to what happened in the first year or year and a half after the accident. How did you combine your involvement in film with your concerns about Fukushima to bring them to the public? I strongly believe that it's really personal stories that move people because it's important, of course, to talk about and communicate the dangers of nuclear intellectually. But what moves people is personal stories. And documentary film gives you an opportunity to hear from these people who experience the suffering or the problems firsthand. And I think that's really powerful. I think it's my vehicle of choice. Like when I talk about my activism, it's like this. I'm LGBT and Asian, dark, pansexual, identified person, but I don't really do a lot for like LGBTQ issues specifically. I see myself as a human rights activist, but when I like represent other people's issues, what allows me to do that most powerfully is documentary film because that's their voices I am bringing to the audience. And especially here in the United States, you know, it's so far, right, far away from Fukushima People usually do not have a direct connection to people in Fushima or in its surrounding. So I think the documentary film really gives people opportunity to really get the sense, get the real sense of what's really happening. How did you first find out about the film Fukushima Speaks and what does it consist of? I made a point two years ago of doing something around March 11th to bring awareness of the issue to the people here, and also for me to remember, to commemorate the incident. So December, I was starting to think what I should do for this year, for 2019. And then I was, uh, of course, looking for some documentary films. And there are many, but Fukushima Speaks caught my attention because of the volumes, sheer volumes the interview, the director, Toshikuni Doi, undertook 100 plus people in four years and he chose 14 people so i was like struck by that sheer volume of people who he interviewed and also like wide range of experiences these people went through i think it's pretty unusual to represent that wide of different point of views and i felt that this is just really important for people to have opportunity to hear all these different perspectives and all these very, very intimate and real and raw personal stories in one sitting. 
What did you find most moving in the film? Is there a particular story that spoke to you most deeply? There was this farmer, older gentleman. He actually passed away after the interview. But anyway, um, so, you know, the agricultural products in Fukushima, as you know, because of the radiation levels, a lot of people shun them. They don't buy agricultural products from Fukushima. And this gentleman was talking about going to marketplaces in Tokyo, kind of like a farmer's market stands and stuff like that in Tokyo, and trying to tell people, try to convince them to buy, essentially. But he tells us he stopped doing that because he saw this young mother apologizing to him because in her heart, she really wanted to support the farmer. But with young children and all, she did not want to give her children food that might be contaminated with radiation. So this gentleman says, you know, like after I saw that, I really cannot tell them to buy my products, even though I need it, you know, I need them to buy, to survive, you know, to make a living. But I will not do that because I don't want to cause that suffering in other people. And that really touched me. So, you know, Libby, the beautiful thing about this film and each interview, it really represents the conflicts, this like complexities of Fukushima experience, because it's like really not one thing. Like on the other hand, these internal uh, turmoil and conflicts that people go through, like, you know, survivors go through, I think it's a common experience in Fukushima. You have a screening that you have set up here in the Los Angeles area for March 9th, and we will post details about that on the site for people who are interested. What do you hope this screening accomplishes? Two things. Eight years after the accident, I know that how to deal with nuclear power plant itself and contamination, it's an easy issue to solve. Take years and years and years. And what I'm concerned about right now is people who are actually suffering in Fukushima or somewhere else, you know, evacuees. I would like people here to really know intimately about their suffering and maybe reach out to them and to help them in some ways. Like I have a contact right now in Japan who is working specifically with mothers and uh, children Fukushima evacuees and survivors who have mental health issues, trauma. Mental health issues and psychological traumas are so stigmatized in Japan. They don't really seek help. So, you know, I'm trying to write some things to get information out so that they can be aware that they've been psychologically traumatized and they can seek help. Bringing this film to as many people as possible I like this to be a starting point. If mm -hmm. others would like to have a screening of this film, how could they make arrangements to do so? If you are in California, please get in touch with me because I can arrange and organize screenings with you. And I really would like this film to reach as many people as possible in as many parts of the world as possible. I think that's an admirable goal, and it's certainly one that can be achieved. And, of course, I will have the appropriate links up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode. That was Japan-born, Los Angeles-based activist Tsukuru Fors Lauritsen.
Fukushima Voices will be presented this coming Saturday, March 9, at ArtShare LA in downtown Los Angeles. We'll have the flyer up on our website along with the full address. The screening starts at 1 p.m., and there will be a 45-minute Q&A afterwards. I will also be there to lend my support and voice to the proceedings. The movie Tsukuru mentioned that so influenced her activism is A2BC, a film about Fukushima radiation's devastating impact upon children seen through the eyes of their mothers. It has footage that was taken in the very early days and first year after the accident. I interviewed director Ian Thomas Ash for Nuclear Hot Seat number 178 on November 18, 2014. And if you'd like to learn more about this devastatingly impactful film, we'll have a link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 401. There is also an interview on that program with Beverly Finley Kaneko, my usual voices from Japan producing partner, about the radiation impact of Fukushima on the children who lived in that area. Even if you cannot attend an anniversary event, there are still things you can do to commemorate Fukushima. The group UnpluggedNuclearPower.com has requested that on March 11, the actual anniversary, you remember Fukushima by unplugging from the electric grid, which uses nuclear power. You don't have to unplug your refrigerator, but anything that is optional, please. Minimize your usage of possibly nuclear-generated electricity. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 5th, 2019. Thanks to all of you for caring enough to listen, and a big shout out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries and counting on six continents. I'll tell you about the attempt to snag a listener in Antarctica next week. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week so you don't miss a single episode, it's easy. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com Scroll down to the yellow box and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, please take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This episode is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with a date that a nuclear emergency starts, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. That's your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.